Hello, strangers, and welcome to the Hollywood Rejects Auditorium. I'm your host, Celise, and today's episode is our transition from cemetery wandering into creepy and haunted dollhouses. Oddities, miniatures, some of my favorite things, and a couple of perfect segues into the new series. Today, I'll be talking with Kathy Ryan, who has someone in the family who designed gravestones and I'll be talking with Halloween Girl Forever who is a fellow creepy miniaturist. Let's get started. So I have Kathy with me today and her grandfather was a graveyard designer. It was my great-great-grandfather Michael Keating and him and his brother John took after their father Edward, an Irish immigrant to the United States and took up the trade of being a stone cutter. cutter. Um, And that's something that they did. Yes. Um, They came to the United States as a family in 1850 from Tipperary, Ireland ended up eventually in Cincinnati where this was their primary trade for both brothers Um, and also their brother, Nick. And one of the things that um, they were able to do um, was to basically translate that that expertise into making a a dollhouse gravestone for their their children that were were gone too soon. And they were able to do that in the St. Joseph New Cemetery in Cincinnati, Ohio. So they had, you know, they were very active in the Cincinnati construction trade. The, the second half of the 1800s for the city of Cincinnati was an incredible time for construction, for Italianate architecture. Um, even now, if you go around the city, uh, there's actually a pretty good stock of it, of historic Italianate architecture in the city. And one of the things that um, I realized when I began to take a closer look at this dollhouse gravestone was that what the Keating brothers essentially did was take the carving um, artistry that they used in their everyday trade in the um, among all the city of Cincinnati buildings that they worked on, and they kind of condensed it down into this dollhouse um, for their children. And that dollhouse is the one that caught my attention. And um, first of all, mm-hmm. I want to thank you because I asked you if you would be interested in being interviewed and you not only said yes, but you sent me like this 50 page PDF of actual information that you have (laughs) pictures and um, history. And it was amazing. And I was like, Oh, if everyone participated this way, it would be like incredible. So the one that you're talking about uh, is called the little house. And um, mm-hmm. it has windows and tiny furniture and all of this. Have you seen it in person? Yes, I actually first went there um, when I was four years old. It, I have a memory of the day I first saw it because it was also the first funeral I had, I had been to for someone um, else on that side of the family. 
And I just remember vividly that day going to the funeral home and to the funeral and then later going to see that dollhouse. Um, it stuck with me for many, many years. Um, that, was, that was in the mid 80s. And then finally, excuse me, in my late 20s, I thought I want to I want to go back and see it again. And since then, I had visited visited it a few times. Um, I knew it was in disrepair. Um, my aunt a few times had kind of tried to look into how to get it restored. Um, and then after so many times and, and watching it kind of degrade, we thought it was time to look into getting it restored. Right, right. So what do you know about your great grandfather's thought process in designing this? Because it's for your family, correct? It's, it's your ancestors yes. who are buried here. Yes. You know, when you hear the folklore from your family about why things happened a certain way, and I'd always heard about the dollhouse and people, I said, well, maybe it was designed after their house that they lived in. Um, maybe it's designed out after a particular house in the city of Cincinnati. Um, and, and really, we didn't know for sure. So once I started to look at it, um, you know, sometimes with things like this, it looks like just one little gravestone dollhouse. But once you really start to dig into the details, it's a kind of amazing the sorts of things you can find out. Um, and, and really where I started with it, I was able to find a gravestone restoration expert. This is all this guy does. And I met him at, at the dollhouse. Um, and the first thing that he told me was we are standing there on the hillside of the cemetery and it's all these mid to late 1800s um, monuments. And all of them are, you know, like a bright white marble. And then right in the middle here, you've got this little dollhouse and it's kind of a very warm textured stone and it's sitting yeah. on a base. And he was able to tell me that everything you see here is white Vermont marble. And during the 1850s and 60s, the freight um, trade expanded and marble became much more practical to transport. So that became a very popular material after the 1850s. And a lot of the materials you see before the 1850s were sandstone because it could be sourced more locally. So he told me then that this was a Buena Vista sandstone. Um, and that was kind of my starting point. Okay. And so I thought, well, you know, I don't know why it looked different. And that was kind of a very interesting fact to learn about it. And, and once I got into looking in the history of John and Michael's trade as stone cutters, um, Michael worked for a company called the LNG Gravesense Company, and they worked on all kinds of stone, um, any kind of stone that you would work on at that time. They worked on the Cincinnati Art Museum and all these big municipal projects. But then John Keating in particular, his brother, he worked specifically for the J. Humble and Company sandstone carvers. And I, in fact, found his, um, I found the thing I, in the, in his, the, the Cincinnati directory, it said, used to say who you worked for way back when. So I was able to find that about John. I noticed the, the sandstone thing. And um, one of the interesting things was on Google books, I found this artist in Ohio, 1787 to 1900. And that had a whole directory of um, different companies and artists that worked on all different types of trades. And it specified in there that the J. Humble Company were known as sandstone artists. 
Um, so that was kind of the starting point was, okay, these were brothers, they were stone cutters. They both worked in sandstone and and John in particular worked in it exclusively. Um, and at that point I was able to find just researching, um, city of Cincinnati historic architecture that sand, that, that Buena Vista sandstone was also used very commonly for some building facades. And then also when you see like an old, big old fence, like where you see 1800s wrought iron fences, where they kind of do the foundation and the pillars and like a decorative stone. And then they have wrought iron in between. Um, You'll see that in a lot of big city parks and things like that. Um, Generally, what I came to find out was that sandstone was, was the primary material that, that in Cincinnati, at least that was used for fences like that. So that was kind of where it started was this, this is the material they used. They obviously used this in their trade. Um, You know, even way back when this, this book was published about artists in Ohio, this was just seen as a very artistic trade to be in. Um, If you walk around Cincinnati now, it's incredible. The, the carvings, the detailed carvings you see in sandstone facades and in these fences that still remain. Um, so that's yeah. kind of where we started. Um, and then so this became like a, this, this really became like a big investigative history dive for you. And you have dug up so much good information and documentation pictures. I mean, you even have receipts and it's pretty cool that you have all of these things on file. Yeah. And, and, and some of it was kind of, you know, you learn one tidbit, like the, the sandstone thing, and it kind of leads you down that path and it allows you to know what to look for to find more information. Um, and in some cases, I was able to reach out to descendants of, of Edward Keating and his, his sons, Michael and John, and there are a number, many of them out there, um, and find other information. So, um, and by doing that, I was able to kind of figure out that the very wealthy people in the city were the ones that really took advantage of this kind of Italianate um, architecture and the carvings and the, the ornate sort of stuff that they, that John and Michael were accustomed to doing. And looking that up, I also came to find out that they did live on, on a part of a, a neighborhood of city which is kind of between downtown and the Mount Adams neighborhood just to the east. And when you look at old photos of there, you see that there are kind of basic wood clapboard houses, nothing that's very ornate. And it kind of became evident evident to me that their inspiration wasn't a house probably that they ever lived in, but these houses that they, where they did all their work. Um, You know, when when you kind of look at the details that are on it, um, I started to kind of dig into those and, and there are two facades on it and they're both a little different and they both are, they, they both feature Italianate architecture styles. Um, there was like a Renaissance yeah. revival style and a second empire style roof on it. And um, like even so, the cornerstones are different from one side to the other. Yeah. Yeah. It was truly like a sampler of probably what their skills were and that they were used to doing every day. And it's so interesting. Don't you think it's so interesting that this was their livelihood? They Mm -hmm. did this for a living. So it's Mm -hmm. not like it's one piece that, oh, we just came up with this idea. Um, 
but the one that is kind of well known is the one that they made for their own family. And mm-hmm. do you, do you have a, any idea of what the rest of their work looks like? I don't. Um, you know, I've I've looked up newspapers and different things to see the kind of work that you could see public bidding advertisements and different things that show that those companies they worked for worked on certain bigger projects that might be in the news or in, you know, different things. But it I've I've not been able to nail down specific buildings that they've worked on. And in fact, one of the things that I had always heard from my grandmother growing up was that Michael had specifically worked on the reptile house in the Cincinnati Zoo, which was originally the monkey house, um, which is actually the oldest zoo building in the country. And yeah, and it's just one of those things where she always said it. um, And I thought, well, it's probably true. And um, it's one of those, I've never been able to verify it. But once I was able to sit down and look at when Michael was active in the trade, uh, you know, his age, everything, it, it was exactly the time when that building was being built and his company was doing many municipal projects um, and many projects like that one. So that's the only one that I, that I suspect and have good reason to believe that, that Michael worked on. Um, but even just today, I was walking downtown and now, you know, I pick out the sandstone fences and the facades downtown, you know, all the time. And I look at every one of them now and look at the carvings on them. And, and I know that my great, great, great grandfather and his brother had worked on at least some of the ones that I may be looking at and walking by every day. Yeah. And like picking out the, the shapes of the windows that they chose. And Mm -hmm. like, like I mentioned that cornerstone and you were saying that it's kind of like a sampler and I can see that now. Um, I didn't think of it that way until you said that, but you're right. It's kind of like, well, look, I, I can make this archway and I can make this cornerstone and I can make this flower. It's, Mm -hmm. it's like everything that I'm good at right here. Mm -hmm. And that's a really cool way to, to think about it too, because if you're not able to pick out every other thing that they might have designed mm-hmm. you're at least you've got this kind of show-off piece that yeah. just happens to be in your family which is even more awesome have you noticed that um well I mean I don't know how much you dive into these things but I'm always watching like cemetery wanderers and um what do you call it? Uh, urban explorers and paranormal stuff. So mm-hmm. I've noticed that there is this huge uprising in the past few weeks of people going to dollhouse graves and dollhouse headstones. And um, the first time I saw one, I think I was around eight. So it's definitely nothing new, but mm-hmm. suddenly people know that they exist. So they're all over the place. Now people are looking for them. Yeah. And yeah. I, I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I have noticed that. And I think because of knowing, knowing about this one, I've noticed people will kind of collect stories and, and links to different ones. There's even one real, very simple other one that's in the cemetery where this one's located. Um, but yeah, that's, it's, it seems like it's a theme and you don't see it very often. And it's often tied to children's gravestones. 
Um, but I, I have, I've, I've noticed a number of them online. Yeah. It seems like, um, you know, when I, when I got a hold of you and we started talking about, um, this, doing this interview one day, um, it just seemed like it was only two weeks ago that I just started seeing like everything on my feed was popping up mm-hmm. and I was like, it's like, they know <laughs> what I'm looking at right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's not like I was searching online for your stuff. Like you sent me a PDF. So I was like, why, why do they know what I'm getting in my personal message? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, so is there anything interesting that you think, uh, you know, just with family stories or anything like that, has anyone told any special stories about this grave that you think, people would want to hear about? Yeah, um, I think going back to when I was first visiting the dollhouse, it was in, again, the the mid 80s. And kind of my story at the time is, you know, I went to a funeral, a very little girl, I saw this, this dollhouse that my, my great aunts and my grandmother and my mother took me to. And you think, as a little kid, you think, wow, that's really cool. You know, that's, that's as you don't really look at the, look at it and see the gravity of this and what the, the parents must have been feeling and right. what they went through and what inspired them to do it. Um, but then many years go by and it's on my mind and I go back and you go back as an adult and you stand there and, and the poem on the side of the dollhouse says one by one, the leaves are falling fading day by day. And in silence, heaven is calling one by one, our lambs away. And it's just to me, Uh, you know, it just gets me (laughs) every time seeing that and thinking of them just losing their little children. Um, And and what what they must have time it was. Yeah. And, and so the experience was for me, something where you look at old photos of people back then, and you know, they're usually not smiling, they look very stoic, you don't really almost comprehend that people a long time ago in these black and white photos or whatever, were just, just like people now, and they had the same emotions and everything. And they were able to capture it in the house. And um, it was interesting when I reached out to some descendants, and one in particular, a great, great grandson of John Keating. Um, he was able to, to give me um, some information. His grandmother was very, very fond of the house. She was born in Cincinnati. Her name was, was Ethel Keating Gerbis. And she lived you know, a long life up and passed away just a few years ago in um, Los Angeles. But she she was very touched by the house. And in 1993, um, she, she wrote a little narrative about her experience. And what really touched me about it was this, this woman who I'd never met. I didn't know she existed. Um, she has these same ancestors that I do. And she had the same experience. She writes in her narrative about going to the little house when she was a little girl and, thinking it was neat. That was what she had in her narrative. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, and then returning to it as an adult and and just the feelings that kind of evolution you have. And it's just amazing to me that I have this ancestor who had these 
artistic skills that they were not only able to commemorate their children, but they were also kind of able to communicate to their ancestors or to their descendants 150 years later, kind of that same feeling like Ethel and I kind of had that same experience. And it was through this gravestone that our ancestor could kind of speak to us and make us feel the same things about their experiences about losing their children. Um, and, and she said in her, she had a line in her um, narrative here say, talking about, um, I see two grieving fathers using their craftsmanship as stone cut cutters to build a house in sorrow over the loss of their babies buried there. Many tears must have mingled with the stone dust as they worked and the house emerged. And it's just, you know, it's, it's amazing to me that someone could take that skill and kind of bring together people and um, kind of communicate that. Yeah. And, and I mean, how much stronger is it to see this beautiful little house in as a symbol instead of just a headstone where of course it's going to take you back to your childhood. It's going to remind you that, you know, this could have been a little wooden dollhouse that the kids were playing with. This could mm -hmm. represent the house of the family. It could be just adding that, that symbolism of a real object instead of just a rectangle um, completely changes the whole experience. It does. And one of the things that I, I think a lot about is the fact that when you go to St. Joseph New Cemetery, um, they have over 160,000 graves there at, at the moment. And I don't have a number, but when you, when you walk through the cemetery, it's amazing and very sad how many children you will see in the cemetery. Um, and one of the things that I really think a lot about is that every parent who lost a child that's buried in that cemetery 150 years ago or 100 years ago, they all felt what the Keating brothers felt. And I think all of them felt like they had to go bury their child and put up a monument. And it never, you know, you put their name, you might be able to put a saying or whatever you can afford to do. Um, but it's never going to feel like enough to really capture your loss and your love for your child. And kind of, I look at what the Keating brothers did in carving this house for their children, putting the poem on the side and everything they did. And it really, to me, it's not just about them, but it kind of embodies what every parent in that cemetery, tens of thousands maybe felt. And, and they didn't have the skill or the, the resources necessarily to all convey that the way the Keating brothers right. did. You know, they, Keating brothers didn't have the money either, but they had the skill and they put that to use in a way that to me, um, it's just, it speaks volumes of, about losing a child and, and um, using art and to, to, to con communicate that in a way that's very long lasting. Yeah. And still moving for your family and moving for future generations who don't know you at all, but mm -hmm. we'll see, we'll see what's there. And, um, you know, there are a lot of, the, this whole episode is about cemetery wanderers and artists and people who have a respect for for the resting place. And um, I'm not talking about, you know, running through 
on Halloween or, you know, having little parties or something. Um, my goal with this, with this topic is to create some kind of organization that takes care of unknown graves. So um, I thought it would be fun to have different artists and different types of cemetery enthusiasts involved. And um, I, I know that you were once um, doing a fundraiser for the upkeep of this grave. Is that still happening? Yes. Um, it was a little over a year ago. We started putting together a Facebook page, uh, Keating Dollhouse. And I, I started recently to migrate a lot of the information to uh, keatingdollhouse.com so that it's a little bit easier to navigate. And it really, it took me a few years of thinking, you know, I know I want to get that dollhouse restored. I just don't know how. Um, And I had recently taken up an interest in the last five years or so in genealogy. And just that, my background in urban planning, I custom to researching historic documents and, and different things. And so, yeah, about a year ago, I, it just kind of a light bulb went off one day. Um, if I'm able to use those skills and tell the story of this dollhouse in a way that, you know, takes what has already been an extremely engaging monument in and of itself and, and to bring it to life even more and the people behind it to life even more, um, that would just go the extra mile to help us in raising the funds we need to restore it. Um, we got a quote at the time and it was about between the cleaning and the restoration. Um, it was going to be about $4,000. And I think right now we've probably got maybe $300 to go and the restoration um, will be completed this year. Last year the um, is Mark Smith of Gravestone Transformations in Ohio. Um, he he gave us a quote. He did the initial cleaning. He did all the tuck pointing work on the foundation um, just to make sure it's stabilized and to, to kind of start, start the work. And since then we've been, you know, fundraising and so many people have participated and taken interest in the house. There've been descendants of the Keatings and also people that some people that live in the Cincinnati area and have always known about the house and been interested in it. And some of them are, you know, perfect strangers from, from elsewhere that saw this and were touched by it and have contributed. And it's just, it's just been amazing to watch how one little monument like that can kind of move so many people. And in turn, what we want to do is, is not only restore it, but then eventually we'd like to get, um, there's a cross that used to be on top that was lost um, that I only really know about from some photos from the seventies that I saw um, and then put a, a placard on it to, to mention the restoration. And then more importantly, to commemorate the other family members buried at the Keating plot um, that it, that comprises the house and make sure that they're also uh, memorialized there. So if someone wants to help you get that last $300 in, <laughs> where can they go to make a donation? Um, they can go to uh, keatingdollhouse.com and every post on there has a donate now button. And that will take you to the Gravestone Transformation site directly, the restorationist that is doing the restoration. And he has a 
donation site there and there's a little drop down menu. So you say you want to donate to a specific fund and you just go down to Keating Dollhouse and you're able to donate that way. All right. I will, I will actually add links to your show notes so that hopefully people will be able to follow that and easily make a donation of whatever they can handle to help you out. Thank you. And, um, you know, I want to tell you, like, you are so lucky to have this history and know what's going on in your past. Mm -hmm. I don't even know anything past my maternal grandmother. And what I know about her is so minimal that, Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't even know what she did for a living. Yeah. So, um, it's just so special that you've got something like this recorded and that you're keeping it alive. So that's amazing for your family and for cemetery enthusiasts, people who just want to know the history of how these things came about and something so unique Mm -hmm. that's both terribly sad and terribly beautiful at the same time that, that they were able to transfer those emotions into art to to continue therapy forever for their family. I think it's just amazing what they've done. Yeah. And, and and I think really even doing this kind of, and I don't know if anybody around the country does this, but I I think this could be a model for doing this in the future for other gravestones and the preservation of gravestones. Um, Because there are lots that even for families that don't know anything about their ancestors gravestone, um, once you really dig into the genealogy and different history and do- city documents or anything you can find, um, there are a lot out there that are just like the Keating Dollhouse, where it's more than just a monument. You can really, you can you can do the research and find, you know, incredible stories and, and be able to to like I said, bring it to life. Um, and I think that's something that might help other gravestones in the future. Um, for those who are willing to put in the time to to really help reinforce the you know the importance of them and make people kind of maybe appreciate them. I know that other than thinking about this one periodically until I really started researching it in the last year, um, I didn't you know spend a lot of time in my life thinking about cemeteries or gravestones, but now every time I go drive by one, sometimes I'll stop in the other cemeteries and look at the gravestones and look at how they might be deteriorating and think about the families that might still be out there um, and just the history of them. And, you know, people are cremated a lot more now and they don't, they have much more simpler ways of burying people, but, or have much more simpler headstones. But this to me, it's almost like a, these things are like pieces of art, just sometimes in, in the thousands out there. And, and there's going to be right. a point where they're going to just all, some, some of them are so special and just watching them deteriorate. Um, you know, it's sad and it'd be nice to, to be able to at least try to save them and build appreciation for them. Absolutely. Kathy, thank you for taking some time out of your day to talk to me about your grandfather, your great, great grandfather and (laughs) art that um, he contributed to the cemetery, to your family and to who knows how many buildings in your area. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much. I enjoyed this. 
Thank you for listening to the Hollywood Rejects Auditorium podcast. I have a question for you. Those of you who want to listen to a little more, we've got some episodes coming up with some really talented miniaturists. Those videos, those episodes actually come with a companion video. And I know that some of these that don't come with a video, some people have mentioned that they feel like there should just be a video instead and not to interview artists who don't want to be on video. So give me an idea of how strongly you feel about that. And it makes me wonder if I should make this just a YouTube project and kind of cut out the podcast portion. So give me an idea if you have a strong opinion about that. I'd love to know. Um, It would definitely change the workload. And since I'm working full time now, that might be somewhat attractive to me in the first place. But if anyone is really liking the idea of just listening and not watching the YouTube video, please let me know because I will keep that part going as well. Thank you so much for being patient through the long break that I had to take. I was quite sick and then I had um, some family issues. So I appreciate all of your patience. Again, thank you for being here. We'll see you soon.